This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part Three, Chapter Fourteen Three years had passed away since the escape of the prisoners from Richmond, and how often during those three years had they spoken of their country, always present in their thoughts. They had no doubt that the Civil War was at an end, and to them it appeared impossible that the just cause of the North had not triumphed. But what had been the incidents of this terrible war? How much blood had it not cost? How many of their friends must have fallen in the struggle? They often spoke of these things, without as yet being able to foresee the day when they would be permitted once more to see their country. To return thither were it but for a few days, to renew the social link with the inhabited world, to establish a communication between their native land and their island, then to pass the longest, perhaps the best, portion of their existence in this colony, founded by them, and which would then be dependent on their country, was this a dream impossible to realize? There were only two ways of accomplishing it. Either a ship must appear off Lincoln Island, or the colonists must themselves build a vessel strong enough to sail to the nearest land. Unless, said Pencroft, our good genius himself provides us with the means of returning to our country. And really, had any one told Pencroft and Neb that a ship of three hundred tons was waiting for them in Shark Gulf, or at Port Balloon, they would not even have made a gesture of surprise. In their state of mind nothing appeared improbable. But Cyrus Harding, less confident, advised them to confine themselves to fact, and more especially so with regard to the building of a vessel, a really urgent work, since it was for the purpose of depositing, as soon as possible, at Tabor Island a document indicating Ayrton's new residence. As the Bonaventure no longer existed, six months at least would be required for the construction of a new vessel. Now winter was approaching, and the voyage would not be made before the following spring. "'We have time to get everything ready for the fine season,' remarked the engineer, who was consulting with Pencroft about these matters. "'I think, therefore, my friend, that since we have to rebuild our vessel, it will be best to give her larger dimensions. The arrival of the Scotch yacht at Tabor Island is very uncertain. It may even be that, having arrived several months ago, she has again sailed after having vainly searched for some trace of Ayrton. Will it not then be best to build a ship which, if necessary, could take us either to the Polynesian archipelago or to New Zealand? What do you think?' "'I think, Captain,' answered the sailor. I think that you are as capable of building a large vessel as a small one. Neither the wood nor the tools are wanting. It is only a question of time. And how many months would be required to build a vessel of from 250 to 300 tons? asked Harding. Seven or eight months at least, replied Pencroft. But it must not be forgotten that winter is drawing near, and that in severe frost wood is difficult to work. We must calculate on several weeks' delay, and if our vessel is ready by next November, we may think ourselves very lucky." "'Well,' replied Cyrus Harding, 
that will be exactly the most favourable time for undertaking a voyage of any importance, either to Tabor Island or to a more distant land. "'So it will, Captain,' answered the sailor. "'Make out your plans, then. The workmen are ready, and I imagine that Ayrton can lend us a good helping hand.' The colonists, having been consulted, approved the engineer's plan, and it was indeed the best thing to be done. It is true that the construction of a ship of from two to three hundred tons would be great labour, but the colonists had confidence in themselves, justified by their previous success. Cyrus Harding then busied himself in drawing the plan of the vessel and making the model. During this time his companions employed themselves in felling and carting trees to furnish the ribs, timbers, and planks. The forest of the far west supplied the best oaks and elms. They took advantage of the opening already made on their last excursion to form a practicable road, which they named the Far West Road, and the trees were carried to the chimneys, where the dockyard was established. As to the road in question, the choice of trees had rendered its direction somewhat capricious, but at the same time it facilitated the access to a large part of the Serpentine Peninsula. It was important that the trees should be quickly felled and cut up, for they could not be used while yet green, and some time was necessary to allow them to get seasoned. The carpenters, therefore, worked vigorously during the month of April which was troubled only by a few equinoctial gales of some violence. Master Jupe aided them dexterously, either by climbing to the top of a tree to fasten the ropes, or by lending his stout shoulders to carry the lopped trunks. All this timber was piled up under a large shed, built near the chimneys, and there awaited the time for use. The month of April was tolerably fine as October often is in the northern zone. At the same time other work was actively continued, and soon all trace of devastation disappeared from the plateau of Prospect Heights. The mill was rebuilt, and new buildings rose in the poultry-yard. It had appeared necessary to enlarge their dimensions, for the feathered population had increased considerably. The stable now contained five onagers, four of which were well broken and allowed themselves to be either driven or ridden, and a little colt. The colony now possessed a plough, to which the onagers were yoked like regular Yorkshire or Kentucky oxen. The colonists divided their work, and their arms never tired. Then who could have enjoyed better health than these workers, and what good humour enlivened the evenings in Granite House, as they formed a thousand plans for the future. As a matter of course, Ayrton shared the common lot in every respect, and there was no longer any talk of his going to live at the corral. Nevertheless, he was still sad and reserved, and joined more in the work than in the pleasures of his companions. But he was a valuable workman, at need, strong, skilful, ingenious, intelligent. He was esteemed and loved by all, and he could not be ignorant of it. In the meanwhile, the corral was not abandoned. Every other day one of the settlers, driving the cart or mounted on an onager, went to look after the flock of musmons and goats, and bring back the supply of milk required by Neb. These excursions at the same time afforded opportunities for hunting. Therefore Herbert and Gideon Spilett 
with top in front, traversed more often than their companions the road to the corral, and with the capital guns which they carried, capybaras, agoutis, kangaroos, and wild pigs for large game, ducks, grouse, jacamars, and snipe for small game, were never wanting in the house. The produce of the warren, of the oyster-bed, several turtles which were taken, excellent salmon which came up the mercy, vegetables from the plateau, wild fruit from the forest, were riches upon riches, and Neb, the head cook, could scarcely by himself store them away. The telegraphic wire between the corral and Granite House had of course been repaired, and it was worked whenever one or other of the settlers was at the corral, and found it necessary to spend the night there. Besides, the island was safe now, and no attacks were to be feared, at any rate from men. However, that which had happened might happen again. A descent of pirates, or even of escaped convicts, was always to be feared. It was possible that companions or accomplices of Bob Harvey had been in the secret of his plans, and might be tempted to imitate him. The colonists, therefore, were careful to observe the sea around the island, and every day their telescope covered the horizon enclosed by Union and Washington Bays. When they went to the corral they examined the sea to the west with no less attention, and by climbing the spur their gaze extended over a large section of the western horizon. Nothing suspicious was discerned, but still it was necessary for them to be on their guard. The engineer one evening imparted to his friends a plan which he had conceived for fortifying the corral. It appeared prudent to him to heighten the palisade, and to flank it with a sort of blockhouse, which, if necessary, the settlers could hold against the enemy. Granite House might, by its very position, be considered impregnable. Therefore the corral, with its buildings, its stores, and the animals it contained, would always be the object of pirates, whoever they were, who might land on the island, and should the colonists be obliged to shut themselves up there, they ought also to be able to defend themselves without any disadvantage. This was a project which might be left for consideration, and they were, besides, obliged to put off its execution until the next spring. About the 15th of May the keel of the new vessel lay along the dockyard, and soon the stern and stern-post, mortised at each of its extremities, rose almost perpendicularly. The keel, of good oak, measured one hundred and ten feet in length, this allowing a width of five and twenty feet to the midship beam. But this was all the carpenters could do before the arrival of the frost and bad weather. During the following week they fixed the first of the stern timbers, but were then obliged to suspend work. During the last days of the month the weather was extremely bad. The wind blew from the east, sometimes with the violence of a tempest. The engineer was somewhat uneasy on account of the dockyard sheds, which besides he could not have established in any other place near to Granite House, for the islet only imperfectly sheltered the shore from the fury of the open sea, and in great storms the waves beat against the very foot of the granite cliff but very fortunately these fears were not realized. The wind shifted to the southeast, and there the beach of Granite House was completely covered by Flotsam Point. 
Pencroft and Ayrton, the most zealous workmen at the new vessel, pursued their labor as long as they could. They were not men to mind the wind tearing at their hair, nor the rain wetting them to the skin, and a blow from a hammer is worth just as much in bad as in fine weather. But when a severe frost succeeded this wet period, the wood, its fibers acquiring the hardness of iron, became extremely difficult to work, and about the 10th of June shipbuilding was obliged to be entirely discontinued. Cyrus Harding and his companions had not omitted to observe how severe was the temperature during the winters of Lincoln Island. The cold was comparable to that experienced in the states of New England, situated at almost the same distance from the equator. In the northern hemisphere, or at any rate in the part occupied by British America and the north of the United States, this phenomenon is explained by the flat conformation of the territories bordering on the pole and on which there is no intumescence of the soil to oppose any obstacle to the north winds. Here, in Lincoln Island, this explanation would not suffice. "'It has even been observed,' remarked Harding one day to his companions, "'that in equal latitudes the islands and coast regions are less tried by the cold than inland countries. I have often heard it asserted that the winters of Lombardy, for example, are not less rigorous than those of Scotland.' which results from the sea restoring during the winter the heat which it received during the summer. Islands are, therefore, in a better situation for benefiting by this restitution. "'But then, Captain Harding,' asked Herbert, "'why does Lincoln Island appear to escape the common law?' "'That is difficult to explain,' answered the engineer. However, I should be disposed to conjecture that this peculiarity results from the situation of the island in the southern hemisphere, which, as you know, my boy, is colder than the northern hemisphere. Yes, said Herbert, and icebergs are met with in lower latitudes in the south than in the north of the Pacific. That is true, remarked Pencroft, and when I have been serving on board whalers I have seen icebergs off Cape Horn. The severe cold experienced in Lincoln Island, said Gideon Spilett, may then perhaps be explained by the presence of floes or icebergs comparatively near to Lincoln Island. Your opinion is very admissible indeed, my dear Spilett, answered Cyrus Harding, and it is evidently to the proximity of icebergs that we owe our rigorous winters. I would draw your attention also to an entirely physical cause which renders the southern colder than the northern hemisphere. In fact, since the sun is nearer to this hemisphere during the summer, it is necessarily more distant during the winter. This explains, then, the excess of temperature in the two seasons, for if we find the winters very cold in Lincoln Island, we must not forget that the summers here, on the contrary, are very hot. "'But why, if you please, Captain?' asked Pencroft, knitting his brows. Why should our hemisphere, as you say, be so badly divided? It isn't just that. Friend Pencroft, answered the engineer, laughing, whether just or not, we must submit to it, and here lies the reason for this peculiarity. The earth does not describe a circle around the sun, but an ellipse, as it must by the laws of rational mechanics. Now, the earth occupies one of the foci of the ellipse. 
and so at one point in its course is at its apogee, that is, at its farthest from the sun, and at another point it is at its perigee, or nearest to the sun. Now it happens that it is during the winter of the southern countries that it is at its most distant point from the sun, and consequently in a situation for those regions to feel the greatest cold. Nothing can be done to prevent that, and men, Pencroft, however learned they may be, can never change anything of the cosmographical order established by God himself. And yet, added Pencroft, persisting, the world is very learned. What a big book, Captain, might be made with all that is known. And what a much bigger book still with all that is not known, answered Harding. At last, for one reason or another, the month of June brought the cold with its accustomed intensity, and the settlers were often confined to Granite House. Ah! How wearisome this imprisonment was to them, and more particularly to Gideon Spilett. Look here, said he to Neb one day, I would give you by notarial deed all the estates which will come to me some day, if you were a good enough fellow to go, no matter where, and subscribe to some newspaper for me. Decidedly the thing that is most essential to my happiness is the knowing every morning what has happened the day before in other places than this. Neb began to laugh. Pon my word, he replied, the only thing I think about is my daily work. The truth was that indoors as well as out there was no want of work. The colony of Lincoln Island was now at its highest point of prosperity, achieved by three years of continued hard work. The destruction of the brig had been a new source of riches. Without speaking of the complete rig which would serve for the vessel now on the stocks, utensils and tools of all sorts, weapons and ammunition, clothes and instruments were now piled in the storerooms of Granite House. It had not even been necessary to resort again to the manufacture of the coarse felt materials. Though the colonists had suffered from cold during their first winter, the bad season might now come without their having any reason to dread its severity. Linen was plentiful also, and besides they kept it with extreme care. From chloride of sodium, which is nothing else than sea salt, Cyrus Harding easily extracted the soda and chlorine. The soda, which it was easy to change into carbonate of soda, and the chlorine, of which he made chloride of lime, were employed for various domestic purposes, and especially in bleaching linen. Besides, they did not wash more than four times a year, as was done by families in the olden times, and it may be added that Pencroft and Gideon Spilett, while waiting for the postman to bring him his newspaper, distinguished themselves as washermen. So passed the winter months, June, July, and August. They were severe, and the average observations of the thermometer did not give more than eight degrees of Fahrenheit. It was therefore lower in temperature than the preceding winter. But then, what splendid fires blazed continually on the hearths of Granite House, the smoke marking the granite wall with long zebra-like streaks. Fuel was not spared, as it grew naturally a few steps from them. Besides, the chips of the wood destined for the construction of the ship enabled them to economize the coal, which required more trouble to transport. Men and animals were all well, 
Master Jupe was a little chilly, it must be confessed. This was perhaps his only weakness, and it was necessary to make him a well-padded dressing-gown. But what a servant he was, clever, zealous, indefatigable, not indiscreet, not talkative, and he might have been with reason proposed as a model for all his biped brothers in the old and new worlds. "'As for that,' said Pencroft, "'when one has four hands at one's service, of course one's work ought to be done so much the better.' And, indeed, the intelligent creature did it well. During the seven months which had passed since the last researches made round the mountain, and during the month of September, which brought back fine weather, nothing was heard of the genius of the island. His power was not manifested in any way. It is true that it would have been superfluous, for no incident occurred to put the colonists to any painful trial. Cyrus Harding even observed that if by chance the communication between the unknown and the tenants of Granite House had ever been established through the granite, and if Top's instinct had, as it were, felt it, there was no further sign of it during this period. The dog's growling had entirely ceased, as well as the uneasiness of the orang. The two friends, for they were so, no longer prowled round the opening of the inner well, nor did they bark or whine in that singular way which from the first the engineer had noticed. But could he be sure that this was all that was to be said about this enigma, and that he should never arrive at a solution? Could he be certain that some conjecture would not occur which would bring the mysterious personage on the scene? Who could tell what the future might have in reserve? At last the winter was ended, but an event, the consequences of which might be serious, occurred in the first days of the returning spring. On the 7th of September, Cyrus Harding, having observed the crater, saw smoke curling round the summit of the mountain, its first vapours rising in the air. End of chapter.